Oh, well met again. Welcome back. I see you've got your mugs full and a bowl of the finest venison stew to be had outside the castle walls. I recommend the fish as well. The crown and lion is known for their fine fried fish, light and crispy and... Oh, oh. The food's good, but you want another story. You've burning questions in your eyes. You're not happy with how my last tale ended, perhaps. You wanted a tale about a sword, eh? And what you got was a story about an elven lord and a spritten sorceress and a forge and the greatest possible sacrifice. All right, very well. If you have a coin and half candle piece or so, I'll tell you the next part of the story of Chularda and of Lord Tasakwe Malinanx. Settle in there, and thank you kindly. Get comfortable, eat while it's hot, and bend to me your ear. Swords, my friends, even great swords of enormous power like Chularda, are just objects. They're just things. Stories, well, stories are driven by the people who live them. There's a great dwarven proverb. Some swords are sharper than others, some swords are stronger. But it isn't the sword you need to worry about so much as the person gripping the blunt end. And oh, that person gripping the blunt end. What of Lord Tasakwi? What of Nightgaze and her terrible sad end? The forging of Chularda was the beginning of a sword, certainly. But I think you'll find it was the beginning of many things. It was one of those defining moments in time, one of those singular points to which so much can be traced. We bards call these stories the cycle of the sword. There are many stories in which our good queen's sword appears, many heroes in her long lineage have carried it into battle, and countless foes have fallen to it. I have told you that Chularda has many names, has been called many things, and this is true enough. But to Tasakwe Malinanx, to the one to whom its creation can be traced, it was a burden, and that is what he called it. You see, the sword he forged, the sword for which his dear friend had given up her very life, didn't belong to him. Oh, I, I see your surprise, desperately unfair cruel even, but the sword Chularda was destined, ultimately, for a man named Isidore Duiratar, Isidore Bloodmoon, and Tasakwi had no idea where to find such a personage. Yes, those wry truckles come to most at this point in the tale. I'd be pretty bitter too were I Lord Tasakwi, and, but why, why was such an awful sacrifice necessary? Alas, I am afraid that my answers will be forthcoming, but not immediate. For a moment, we shall wait on the question of that pure soul's ultimate sacrifice, and satisfy with just the knowledge that such a sacrifice was necessary. I promise to address this, but consider as I go on that she and Tasakwi had undergone all of that knowing, knowing that she was going to part with her life for a sword that was not intended for his hand, not knowing where or when its true owner, or perhaps partner would be the better word, would be found. In the interim to answering those questions that burn in your hearts, let me impart that Tisakwi discovered another difficulty. Nightgaze didn't know how to be a sword. Ah, you begin to understand me, 
I see the comprehension in your eyes. Nightgaze not only gave her blood to quench the Argentile, but her very essence became part of the fundamental structure of Chularda. The sword, as I mentioned earlier, is sometimes called the Daughter of Dreams, because in such a form, Nightgaze Morning Moon became the daughter of the Angel of Morning's vision. But she still needed to learn, and in those early years learn she did, in the capable hands of Tasaqui Malinanx. The idea admittedly had not been strictly original to him. It had come to him one night as a vision, or as a dream perhaps, more than a year after the blade had been forged and he'd returned home to Ironman and his mate Sorleanne and their two grown daughters. He'd been sleeping soundly for once, with Sorleanne at his back when a presence had awoken him and he'd found himself staring into the familiar azure gaze of his slain friend. To say that he was surprised would have been accurate, but Tasaqui was far too curious as to her sudden appearance to feel any sort of alarm. Spirits are not terribly uncommon, as you travelers may know from experience, and this would certainly not be the first time the elven lord had treated with beings ephemeral. You don't use me, Nightgaze told him quietly and without preamble. Her voice in the darkness was both soft and echoing, both heard and perceived. You keep me wrapped in dark cloth and out of sight. This was true. Tasakwi had left Condonal with the blade bound tightly up in the midnight-colored cloth that had once been the wrapping for the lump of raw starstone. And while it had never been beyond the reach of his hand, he'd to that point never unwrapped it, not even upon returning to Sorleanne. He acknowledged her point with a nod, but said nothing, and she went on. I was made for the children of Iritar, but I am not yet complete and ready for their hands. Unbidden, Tasakwi felt his ire rising. Is this another cruelty of the Angel of Mourning? He hissed, though he was fairly certain the Angel was not capable of actual cruelty. Not in the sense that you or I might understand it. No, Nightgaze told him, smiling. Even in the darkness, he had no trouble seeing her reach out with softly luminous fingers and grasp the strands of his scarlet hair spilled across the pillow between them. More the request of a friend. I need to learn, Tasakwi. I need you to use me. Train me. Impart the movements of the way of the blade to me. Imprint on me the way I am to be wielded. You have time. Use it. Pit me against the best you can find, and better yourself along the way. And just as quickly as she had appeared, she was gone. Tasakwi had started then, still unsure whether it had been a dream or some other sort of vision. Whichever it had been, sleep was elusive for the rest of the night, and while not as important to the High Elven Lord as it would be to you or to me, his restlessness eventually woke his sleeping Sorleanne. It is surprisingly plain, Sorleanne had said with characteristic bluntness as she poured tea for them to have with their morning meal. He'd finally unwrapped the sword and it lie between them on its midnight-colored cloth. I am not certain what I expected, she had added, sipping the hot, fragrant beverage. 
but this doesn't quite fit my imagining of a magicked sword. I don't know that I would call this a magicked sword, Tasaki returned sourly, unless you seek to make an especially tasteless pun. Sorlan barked a laugh into her teacup and recoiled as she burnt herself. Not my intention at all, she assured him, touching her tongue to her scalded lip before chuckling again and adding, but in fairness, Nightgaze would have found such to be hilarious. Well, that is all too true, he admitted. He tapped the round, brass-colored pommel with a long finger. This goes far beyond any ordinary enchantment. This is, was, is our friend. Chularda, Quarkatar named it. The runes can be read as dwarvish, though they are not quite dwarven letters. I cannot see these runes of which you speak, Sorlian admitted, and do not know how that word translates into our tongue. She rose from the table and brought him one of her many half-filled sketching books and a charcoal stick. Tasakwi accepted both, and quickly sketched the runes as he'd made them. Chularda, he told her, as nearly as I can tell, means the sword who is not a sword. He hesitated thoughtfully and added, or perhaps the sword who is more. Sorlian stretched out a hand and let her fingers hover over the center of the blade. After a moment, she withdrew, turning curiously shrewd eyes on him. This blade will not abide my touch. It was not really a question, and Tasakwi held her emerald gaze with his own ruby stare. The Angel of Morning was very specific. The blade belongs to the Duiratar line. I am merely its maker and caretaker. Duiratar! Sorlian hadn't bothered to hide her shock. That is a human name. It is. Her sharp green eyes narrowed suspiciously. This seems a very powerful weapon to be entrusted to something as inconstant as a human. Tasakwi sighed. The argument was an old one. Sorlian, he began, but she made a chopping gesture with her right hand. I don't want to hear it, she told him firmly, nor do I wish to argue. Humans are dangerous and cannot be trusted. I don't blame you at all for your anger at the loss of night gaze even if I don't think we are angry for the same reasons. Tasakwi sighed again. Lili, he soothed, using her pet name. Some humans cannot be trusted, that is true. Many, even. But some can. Some are different. Different is a kind word, she hissed. They are spoiled, a rotted imitation of the elves and sprites who came before them. Enough, Sorlian. He did not like taking that tone with his mate. It always felt so disrespectful, and he truly felt nothing but the greatest respect for her. She was the green-eyed raven, one of the most accomplished and talented warriors among his people, and their greatest general. That she had found herself battling humans, and losing friends and comrades to them, more than once could not be ignored or denied. Still, that prejudice did not serve her, and it troubled him greatly. Humans are exactly what they were created to be, he told her after she'd had a moment to glare at him, her slitted green eyes so intense 
that the pupils had become the slimmest of vertical black lines. They alone, of Rhett's children, have the ability to choose between the darkness and the light. It is my distinct experience, she bit each word off harshly, that they spend far more time choosing the darkness. I know, he said soothingly, that your talent and your profession has led you into conflict with humans more often than not is undeniable. But they are not spoilt as a race any more than we are. It is not right to judge them so harshly, Sorlian. Her bright green eyes still burned with the force of her descent, and he went to her and gently placed his hands upon her shoulders. She turned her face away, but did not shy from his touch. What of the Dumalakais? he asked her quietly. What of the Ducordas? She gave him the barest of glances from the side of her eye before exhaling sharply through her nose. <sighs> the valor and honor of the Dumalakai clan is undeniable, she admitted at last. It is true that they have proven themselves to be courageous, both on and off the field. And the Ducorda's fervent opposition to the Council of Iltholian is noted and appreciated. Their talent and strength in the magical arts is undeniable. Welcome, certainly, as they seem to be the only voice of reason among human-born magi. And the Duiratar? Sorlian sighed again and pulled away from him. Tisakwi had known it belonged to a human as much from its style as having been told directly by the Angel of Mourning, but it was plainly clear that Sorlian knew more. It was equally clear that she knew he knew and her suffering sigh brought a twitch of a grin to his lips. <sighs> I know only a little, she explained, reading his expression so accurately that it was though she could read his thoughts. There is not much to be said about the reclusive men who've taken the name Blood Moon for their own. They dwell in the eastern hinterlands, watch the borders, and do not engage in any of the seemingly endless politicking that humans find so appealing. Erebor is their current warlord, since that's how humans seem to like to organize themselves. But his mate is just as formidable. She is known to me. Her name is Amahita of Gehedni, and she was once a sister of Dusk. She is known to you, Tasakwi gently queried, being careful not to smile at the sour look she turned on him. Your point is made, Chosen, she returned most certainly not hiding her own smile as his face stilled and his lips thinned. He was inclined to ignore that barb. Sorlian was a fighter in all that she did and was quite as formidable with her words as she was with her blades. She enjoyed her victory for only a moment before continuing. Amahita is the granddaughter of that slip of a girl I sent off to find Blacy Greenwild the last time you came here bearing fruit from Quarkatar's forge. I serin the one-handed. Well, she had both her hands when I sent her looking for Blacy, Sorlian remarked. But I, that's the one. Like her grandmother, Amahita also became a sister of Dusk. I knew and spent time with her when I attended Iserin's funeral. And she and Iserin, both human beings? Sorlian gazed at him evenly. Perhaps I am hasty? she said. Perhaps you are correct in that the trials of the past have colored my senses toward them unfairly. 
I yield the ground to Sakwi. I shall not prejudice, but I shall remain cautious. I ask no more, he told her softly, but there have been humans that you have trusted, some that you have even liked. A truth I will not deny, Sorlean admitted, but they have been human women all. She poured herself another cup of tea and regarded the sword between them for a long moment before adding, Unlike us, I sometimes think human women and men are of two distinct and disparate species. Tasakwi laughed aloud. And in what way does that differ them from us, my beautiful enigma? She favored him with one of her mischievous and mysterious smiles and said no more on that subject. Sipping her tea, she settled into a long and silent contemplation of the ordinary-looking broadsword between them. Thrice she reached out and almost touched the grip, the pommel, the blade, but each time she carefully withdrew her hand an instant before her skin made contact with any part of the weapon. At last her fingers found Tasakwi's hand across the polished wooden surface of their table, and she took it in her grasp. Tell me why, she queried quietly. Why on earth did she ask you to take her life? crimson-haired elf stared into his beloved's eyes, but his own scarlet gaze saw a different scene than the one before him. In the moments immediately after its quenching, he'd withdrawn it from the body of his slain friend and hurled it across the forge chamber. He cared nothing for a sword he'd spent eleven years of his life in the pursuit of forging. It was nothing to him but a collection of exotic metals and woods, and the very lifeblood of his dearest friend. He long remained there, kneeling on the floor of the dwarven forge, holding her to him and weeping. His tears were half grief, but they were half anger, too. Anger at what had been asked of him, of what had been asked of them both, seethed in his heart. Why? Why did you do it? There was no anger nor rancor in Sorlean's soft, gentle voice. Why did Nightgaze give herself to the sword? And why in heaven's name did you allow it? Why didn't you seek another way? These were very good questions. With gentle pressure, Tasakwi squeezed and held Sorlean's fingers in his own, and began to explain, though his voice came in fits and starts. Why indeed did Nightgay's Morning Moon give herself to the forging of the sword? He asked her, his soft voice contemplative and distant. I did fight with her, Lili. When we arrived at Condonal, she was injured, as I've told you, fevered. My first audience with the Gorgodal was in her sickroom when he appeared in the middle of the second night we were there. Sorlean remained quiet, sipping tea and projecting sooth and solace through the clasp of their hands. She was awake, though, taking some tea and broth and bread. In spite of the wound and the subsequent infection and fever, Nightgaze never lost control of her faculties. She never experienced any sort of delirium. He paused and smiled wanly into Sorlean's emerald gaze. Why do I tell you this? he asked rhetorically. I know why, Sorlean affirmed. She was my friend, too. He nodded, and for the first time poured himself a cup of tea without releasing her fingers. He sipped, and staring into the cup continued, It was that night that Quarkatar explained to us what was required to complete the sword. 
that living blood was needed to quench the blade. That a life would have to be given, sacrificed, to realize the end of the task we'd undertaken. That argenteal is so very rarely used, even if a store of the raw metal exists, because the cost is so prohibitively high. She listened. Nightgaze listened to every word he said, and as soon as he was done, volunteered herself. He heaved a sigh and swirled the tea in his cup. <sighs> I fought with her. I argued about her decision, harangued her for being resolute when she was sick with injury and fever. For many long hours before we made the descent to the forge beneath the mountain, I tried to get her to reconsider. I begged her to send for another of her friends among the Magi that the wound in her side might be healed. She wouldn't hear of it. Sorleanne's words had not been a question. She had known Nightgay's morning moon for as long as she had known Tosakwi. A long, long time indeed. No, of course not, Tosakwi agreed. Not Nightgay's. The forging of the sword was the mandate of the Angel of Morning, she reasoned to me, in that maddeningly placid way she had, and thus was as good as having come from the God King himself. The conditions, design, and materials were meticulously specific, and one of those conditions was the very secret of Argentile itself. When the right conditions are met, there is no metal known in creation that, in its workable form, is as pure, flexible, and immeasurably strong. But the most important condition that Argentile cannot be completed cannot be rendered useful unless it is quenched in living blood. He drained the cup. It had been lukewarm already when he poured it, and considered his mate with a dark look glittering in his slitted red eyes. She reasoned that if not her own life, someone's would have to be given to complete the forging of this damnable sword. He paused just a moment and added, somewhat bitterly, a grim price from the Angel of Mourning. Grim? asked Sorleanne. And yet did you not tell me the decision was hers? Aye, it was hers, Tasakwi agreed readily. She claimed to know her own demise was at hand, that the imp that had injured her had left her with a poison, lingering and ultimately fatal wound. If my life is to end... She said to me, I am determined to make that end the beginning of something greater than myself. I am determined to claim that right for myself. She was dying, Sorleanne insisted gently. You look as though you find this distasteful, and perhaps that is fair. When speaking of such things, we often associate blood rites with the very darkest sort of magic. And when we are honest... That type of thing certainly lends itself to some truly horrific abuses. To cruelty. To tyranny, even. Blood taken is powerful, certainly, but limited. Blood is at its most potent when given willingly. And as a sorceress, Nightgaze certainly knew this. And you being Kin Kival, and she being Kaya, neither had any choice in the making of this weapon. You abhorred the need for her sacrifice because of how much you loved her, yet still you respected her. You respected that her life was hers to control, her fate her own to determine. 
In the end, Tasakwi, you loved her enough to grant her the honor and dignity of a clean death. Had I been she, I would have asked the same. He was quiet for a long time. The pair of you always had such understanding, Tasakwi said finally, meeting her gaze. I am not always so gifted. Hmm, Sorlian murmured. And yet somehow you were so often the voice of moderation and reproach. She took a deep breath, squeezed his fingers one last time, and released his hand. So now she wants you to teach her the way of the blade. So it would seem, he rejoined. I do not doubt that she visited, though by exactly what manner I am not wholly certain. It is of no moment, Sorlian said dismissively. However, the method, be it dream or vision or spirit corporeal, she made her desire known. We can begin today, you and I, though I feel we are so comfortably matched after all these years of training together that I won't better you much more than I already have. Sorlian paused a moment, smiled sardonically, and leaned across the table, speaking her next words close to the pommel of the blade laid between them. I told you so, she said in an exaggerated whisper. Tasakwi watched this with a look of mild amusement and frank curiosity. Sorlian, catching and accurately reading his look, laughed and said, straightening, don't you remember all those times I tried to get her to let me teach her a thing or two about how to wield a sword, or a spear, or anything? Now it was his time to offer a quiet chuckle. That you certainly did. And she'd always turn to me and suggest that I agree that her magic was surely enough for her. And you always did, Sorley Ann remarked coyly. Didn't I just say you were the somehow always the voice of mediation? His laugh turned warmer. <laughs> Very well, General, he said. We shall begin under your instruction. For the first time in her presence, he took up the blade by the hilt and held it in his hand. The weapon was perfectly balanced and lighter than he expected. Lighter than he remembered, though truthfully those memories were bleak and could hardly be trusted for their accuracy as they were so tainted by emotion. The sword seemed to weigh little more than a fine catal the straight-bladed elven swords of which he was so much more familiar. And yet it was so much broader and designed to be wielded entirely with a single hand. You should send for Blacy, Sorlian remarked, watching him test the swing and balance of Chularda. She's far more talented with the sword than I. I am certain that she could impart some new techniques. I had thought of her, Tasakwi murmured. It would be good to see her again regardless, since she was the recipient of the first blade I made in Quarkatar Doomstrider's forge. The Everblade will come, Sorlian mused, using the woman's more common moniker. Ask her to bring others she might know who could be of assistance in furthering this endeavor of yours, this teaching a sword how to be a sword. Also a good idea. Tasakwi returned the blade in his hand to its dark leather scabbard but this time he buckled the belts about his waist and adjusted the position to suit his draw. The midnight blue cloth he folded neatly and tucked away in a drawer in the kitchen cabinet and then took quill and ink and paper from the writing desk they shared. His missive was simple and took little time to craft. 
when it was done, dusted, and sealed with an admittedly messy clot of wax. He set it on the corner of the table and addressed Sorleanne, who had watched the process in comfortable silence. I'll send it by a mage's meal to Kithrin, he told her. Jaka or Dinidria could provide that service, I think. Either of them for certain, Sorleanne agreed, but Jaka is bringing me some eggs and mitikint later today, so I'll have him send it off. Eggs and medicinal herbs, Tasakwi teased. Are you thinking of trying some new dish to upset my delicate constitution? She laughed broadly and led him outside. When Sorleanne intimated they would begin a thing immediately, she meant within the candlepiece. Your constitution, old elf, is about as delicate as your dwarven friend. Come now, I can tell that blade is unfamiliar in your hand. Let's go through the forms until you're comfortable with its balance and reach. The pair of them went some weeks like that, sparring and training for hours a day outside of their little house in the ancient elven city of Ironman. Often, they drew a crowd. Curious elves and sprites who'd been drawn by the noise or by the swiftly spreading word that General Sorleanne Sliftwood and her enigmatic mate Tasakwi Malinanx were to be seen daily in their garden sparring at swords. Conjecture as to what this portended ran wild, and while some came to gawp and gasp with elated jubilance at the spectacle, others came and looked on with some unease. Regardless of rumor and hearsay, however, the pair persisted and Tasakwi quickly became accustomed to Jularda and could wield it with all of his natural elegance and skill. On the morning of the day before midsummer, it was their turn to be surprised, however, when they came into their garden in the hour just after dawn and found a visitor awaiting them. She was sitting as still as stagnant water on top of their garden wall, hooded and cowled and dressed all in mottled gray and black. She was armed as well, a pair of swords hung inverted on her back in those strange locking scabbards favored by Spriton warriors. If not for the last bit of moon glow and their own innate ability to see in the dark, her silhouette might have gone unnoticed. Razor-eyed Sorleanne picked her out at once and laid a staying hand on Tasakwi's arm at the very moment he too noticed the visitor. Her face was turned away from them, turned toward the west and the setting moons, though trees and distance obscured all sight in that direction. Good morrow, Sorleanne ventured. Have you lost your way? The stranger turned toward them, showing dark, changeling eyes the deep violet color of summer thunderclouds shot through with flecks of gold. It was but a scant part of her visible above the cowl, and those were set into a sliver of face the color of warm toffee. For a moment, she silently regarded them, and they her, and Tasakwi was gripped with the sense that the stranger was deciding how to introduce herself. At last, she settled for reaching up slowly with gloved hands and lowering her hood. Her hair was the color of late autumn chestnuts braided in a crown about her head and pulled back from her oval-shaped face. The cowl she pulled down a moment later, revealing a countenance that could have passed for human except for the uncommonly delicate features. No, she said at last in a voice both pleasant and hearty. No, I have not lost my way. She alighted from the wall, as silently as down falling on snow, and sketched a brief bow. You sent for the Everblade, but she cannot attend you by the by. I have come in her stead. 
You are of the Order of Dusk, Sorlean asked. Blacy Greenwild is known to you. The woman's lips quirked in the brief ghost of a smile, and she inclined her head politely to the Elphus. Yes, I would venture that the Everblade is known to me, she affirmed. And known to me also is the blood to whom yon blade belongs. She gestured toward Tasaku with a slight wave of her fingers. It would be the greatest of all honors to introduce her to her sisters. Here, she indicated her own weapons by lightly touching the hilt above her left hip. As Tasaku had intimated to Blasey in his letter that he was encouraging her to send or bring any others whom she thought might make worthy opponents, he saw no reason to refuse the stranger. I welcome your offer, he returned, giving a slight bow in return. How are you called? I was born Agala Tael, the woman replied, but I am called most often now by these names. And she withdrew the pair of swords from the intricate rocking scabbards on her back. This is Malrius, she said of the one in her right hand, it was darker than a moonless midnight, so black the gray light of early day seemed to be consumed by it. And this, Lalios. The one in her left was bright and silvery and seemed to glow about the blade with a faint gray nimbus. The air about her changed suddenly, seemingly charged in some unknown way. You'd hardly notice the woman holding the pair of strange swords for the presence of the blades themselves was so commanding. I have heard those names, Sorlean said in a hoarse whisper. They are the silence, she translated, and the skeleton key. And the woman who wields them is known by many names, Tasakwe finished for her, surprising her that he too had heard of the Swords of Dusk. She is called the Mist of Morning, and she who goes unseen. He lifted his chin regally, but his predatory smile wasn't for the woman, but rather for what she might teach him. Sometimes she is called the Shade of the Veil. He paused, and here the visitor smiled slightly and offered a much more formal genuflection. And sometimes, he finished, the first breaking light of day obscuring his features in a sudden wash of golden light. She is simply called Vengeance. Oh dear, more swords, and another person gripping the blunt ends, eh? You seem to be thirsty now to know more about this stranger who's come upon Tasakwe and Sorlean in their garden. Who is Agalatiel, and why has she come in place of their friend Blacy Greenwild? What is the Order of Dusk? Why does the woman have so many names, and what do they mean? My, my, so many questions, and they shall have answers, I promise you. You have a thirst that can be quenched with another tale. And old Orion, well, I have a thirst that requires another ale. Tarry not long away, my friends, for I have a feeling that both can be attended to forthright. For now, though, I beg your leave. Go on now with you, and may you return wealthier than when you left. Peace and good health, my friends. Until next time. For your attention to this story, my friends, I thank you. Tales from the Crown and Lion is a fantasy storyteller podcast. 
Orion Rall, the storyteller, is read by the author, Gabriel M. Cole. Musical intros and backgrounds are produced by Fezlian Studios and are used here under license. You can visit them at fezlianstudios.com. This is a work of fiction, and all characters are the sole creation of the author. Any resemblance to persons living or dead or otherwise is purely coincidental. If you enjoyed tonight's story, please let me know. You can drop a mage mail to storyteller at crownandlionpodcast.com, send a brief whisper of a message to at Orion Rawl on Twitter, or follow Orion Rawl on Instagram. That's O-R-R-I-E-N-R-A-A-L. If you'd like more information about upcoming episodes or to see some of the more unfamiliar words or place names are spelled, feel free to visit the Crown and Lion yourself at www.crownandlionpodcast.com.